Rural hospitals often transfer patients for higher levels of care, both from the emergency room and their inpatient units. But sending them to another facility can be detrimental to the hospital, not to mention the hardship it creates for families and loved ones to visit during the patient's hospitalization out of town. So, how do rural hospitals take care of their patients locally as often as possible? With careful review, addition of new services, and a willingness to fight for their patients. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 81 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. You know, Rachel, we talk a lot about specialty care and we talk about it often. Um, and, and the reason for this is because we want our patients to have access to almost everything they could possibly need right here in their own community. But rural hospitals still have to transfer patients to higher levels of care at times. It's just what we call the nature of our business. That's right. And today we're talking with someone who, as she shared with us in a meeting very recently, has reviewed every transfer out of our hospital since 1992. Wow, 1992. I think I was 10. I I double-checked that date with her this morning because I was like, is it really that long? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Well, we're going to get some great perspective then today about transfers. Uh, This is very exciting. That's right. Our guest today is Doris Worley, Director of Risk Management, Patient Advocate, Recipient Rights, and the list probably goes on and on here at Hillsdale Hospital. So welcome back. I think this is your second time on Rural Health Rising. Welcome back, Doris. Thank you. To start, Doris, for those who didn't catch episode 27, if you can believe it was that long ago when you were on, or those who are maybe new listeners to the show, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Hillsdale Hospital as who I lovingly refer to as the queen of Hillsdale Hospital. But tell us about your your background and experience with us. Well, thank you, Rachel. I, I like to preface by saying, I used to preface by saying that I started working here when I was four, but now I've moved it back to two. Two. Because I have been here, um, as of June of this year, 54 years. Wow. I started out working 20 years in the emergency department as an LPN. I went back to school to get my RN, um, continued to work in the emergency department. I moved into supervision from that. Um, I have been the director of nursing, patient advocate, um, three different times. Um, and I've been the risk manager for the hospital since 1995. And I did the risk management and director of nursing together for about 20 years before we separated those positions. And then I stayed on to risk management. And now um, with the changes that went on with COVID um, and we had to do some restructuring within the hospital, I got the patient advocate position back along with recipient rights. So, and all other duties as assigned. <laughs> well, I think assigned it's... Or, or voluntold. Yeah. <laughs> or voluntold, yes. So I think it's a fair assessment to say you, you enjoy your job and it's been a very good career so far, but many years ahead. So I was going to say, so what you're saying is you run the joint. <laughs> Yeah. Or have for a long time in a lot of ways. No. Oh, yeah. So, so Doris, uh, obviously now that we've established who you are and what you do here at Hills Hospital and have done, let's start with the why. We do this on every episode so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So what is your why? What gets you up in the morning? Uh, what excites you? What motivates you about what you do here at Hillsdale Hospital? 
Well, I, I, I'll go back to the beginning. Um, I knew right from when I was a small child that I wanted to be a nurse. I always liked and um, loved caring for people. So that that was my driving force ever since I was probably four or five years old, truly. What gets me up today still is I really do love my job. I mean, people will... Um, come to me all the time and say, why haven't you retired yet? Why are you still working? Well, because I don't want to sit home and do nothing for one thing. And besides, I really do love what I do. And I hope every day when I get up that I can make a difference here at this hospital for my coworkers and mostly for our patients. So I can say confidently that I know that you do that every day. And uh, for me, at least, if not for anybody else. So um, we're going to talk about our our main subject today. This is a big conversation in rural healthcare for one, but also in the healthcare industry today as we talk about, you know, struggles with EMS and shortages in that section of the industry as well, um, because that also ties back into transfers. So we're talking about transfers today, but why don't we start by kind of letting you, Doris, lay the foundation for us. We know that all rural hospitals transfer patients, and even many larger hospitals, by the way, transfer patients. It's not just rural hospitals who have a need for that at times. Um, it's very routine. It's a necessary part of healthcare. But what requires patients to be transferred? It's not just one thing, right? No, it can be a it can be a multitude of things. I mean, obviously, for small rural hospitals, there are there are things that we absolutely cannot take care of here, and we will right. never be able to take care of here. And we wouldn't try to if we couldn't do it safely. Exactly. We don't do brain surgery. We don't do heart surgery. We don't do heart caths. Um, and sometimes you get a patient who maybe has been an inpatient for several days and is just not getting better. And, and our providers have reached out to all the resources possible and, and to do what's best for the patient, they feel it's necessary to transfer them to a higher level of care where there are more resources that possibly they can figure out what's going on with the patient and help Mm -hmm. them to get better. When, they, when we've just struggled and know that we're not doing everything that we can. Well, and sometimes, like even in, in COVID, we were seeing the kind of reverse traffic pattern in terms of transfers that a lot of larger facilities were out of beds and were sending patients to smaller facilities strictly because of the, the bed availability issue. And so sometimes that's a problem, too. I mean, we had that sometimes during COVID where we didn't have a the appropriate staffed bed for a patient in their particular condition. So we were trying to find a place that could take them, not because we couldn't take care of them in terms of capabilities, but because we just were too full, right? Right. And, um, and we're sort of still having that problem now. Um, not necessarily that we can't, that we don't have the space for the patients, but we still have those patients occasionally that that do need transfer to a higher level of care. And those hospitals are still full mm-hmm. and have 30, 40, 50 patients waiting in their emergency departments for right. beds. And we may have a patient waiting in our emergency department for two or three days waiting for a bed at a higher facility, at a higher level facility. So Doris, can you give us an example for Hillsdale in particular what are some of the types of conditions that we would potentially need to transfer a patient for? I know, you know, we were talking 
um, maybe a couple weeks ago about a patient that we had waiting for a transfer who was ha- who had a, a non-STEMI. But what are those different kinds of things that we in particular at Hillsdale might be looking to transfer a patient because of? Um, cardiac is, is probably one of our biggest ones. Um, uh, and you, you mentioned a non-STEMI. STEMI is a ST elevation MI, and that, that is one of the most critical. And right. those patients need to, there's a, a very strict time frame to get the patient to, to the cath lab. Mm-hmm. Um, a non-STEMI is just, it's still a heart attack. But the the urgency isn't quite as serious. But those patients do still need to get to to a cath lab. So it's those those patients that need cardiac interventions, open heart surgery, um, um, cardiac cas that we have to transfer because we don't do those here. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a, a fair amount of mental health transfers. We do have an inpatient uh, behavioral health unit, but there are certain types of you know behavioral health conditions that we don't treat or don't specialize in, whether it is related to age or, you know, a specific issue. Um, if it's substance related, there are some things we don't do, right? Yes. I mean, we have a 10-bed psychiatric unit here, but sometimes it's difficult to fill all those beds for for different reasons. Um, so we do transfer a fair amount of adult psychiatric patients. We'll get some elderly um, geri- geriatric psychiatric really patients geri- that require unit, not... a specific mm-hmm. type of hospitalization. And we don't do adolescents here at all. Mm-hmm. So all adolescent psych patients have to be transferred. And it's, it's, it's extremely sad um, to see the amount of mental illness that we have in our community and especially in our adolescents. It's it's overwhelming. You know, what's very interesting, Doris, is, you know, part, someone may be listening to this and say, how awful they're, you know, they're trying to transfer people out and can't they give the care there? You've already addressed the medical side, but let's talk a little bit about what's happening, you know, across this country, which is access to mental health. And you're on a committee with me. We meet regularly with uh, the director of our LifeWays here, Mental Health Services, Community Mental Health. Um, But, you know, a lot of what we've experienced is uh, very challenging when it comes to that patient population because of placement and transport. Um, But it's not a proper place for mental health patients, correct, in the emergency department? In fact, I was just, I just, today's my first day back to work today from a training. This week, I went to a recipient rights training in Mount Pleasant. And in fact, that subject was discussed in our training. The fact Mm. that, I mean, it is very well known in Michigan and well, in fact, all over the United States that that the access for mental health care is extremely, extremely poor all Mm -hmm. over the country. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is something that that they are that they are trying to work on. But it is um, trying to get somebody admitted to to another healthcare facility. And they are very, very much aware that it is putting a huge strain on emergency emergency departments everywhere, having to board these mental health patients in the emergency departments for days and sometimes weeks before we can get them in into a, a facility. And a lot them. of the a lot of the leading articles mm-hmm. I'm reading in part, it's because of access, number one. Number two, transport. 
Right. So, you know, we've battled some transport ba- uh, issues here, right? Yeah. Getting the patients. So let's talk a little bit about that because this isn't just plugging Hillsdale Hospital in a lot of my CEO roundtables. Uh, this is becoming more and more problematic for healthcare to get patients out of their emergency department, whether it's on the medical side or on the mental health side. But the mental health side, particular to us, has been a bigger challenge, right? Yes. It, for for quite some time, it was a, a a very large challenge because we might get a a bed for a patient. Um, and then we would try to arrange transport to get the patient where they needed to go. And we couldn't find anybody to transport the patient. Then we'd lose the bed. So then they would be in the in the emergency department for several days longer. That went on for probably a good year. Um, <clears throat> we have been able to access um, a transporting agency now with the help of our local CMH Lifeways. And we do have an agency now that is pretty responsive at transporting our patients. And lots of times for adolescents, um, they will allow the parent to transport the patient where they need to go. Okay. Right. Okay. Something I heard um, recently on a, uh, it was actually at our MHA legislative policy panel meeting, um, was that there's sometimes as well a gap between bed availability. We're talking specifically about adolescents. There may be a gap between bed availability and the number of patients waiting in an ER, but those don't just fit together like a puzzle because there are those other factors in between, like the transport. Sometimes it's related to insurance authorizations, and that's part of why people are waiting longer than they need to be, even if there may be an open bed somewhere. So it's a very complex issue. I think we really probably need to do a whole episode on that. Um, I would agree. But when you're so part of what we do now is um, we review our transfers very closely. So um, but before we get to that, JJ, I know one of your goals since taking over as president and CEO has been to decrease the number of transfers that we do each year. But why is that important to us as a hospital and to our patients? Well, first, Rachel, I want to make it clear, you know, no hospital executive wants to have his or her patients from that respective community uh, taken out of their health system if it can be prevented. In other words, if, if we can provide as a healthcare system the services that are needed in this community to take care of that specific patient, there should be no need to take that patient out. So it is, you know, as we talk about transfers, it is one of the things that causes me to be awake at night as I consider, was that appropriate transfer? And it has prompted us, and we're going to talk to Doris about this in a minute, for us here at Hillsdale Hospital to create what is called the Transfer Task Force, a task force which she started, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But ultimately, as the president of the hospital, it is my obligation, responsibility to make sure that we have services, wide range services for patients to receive their care at home. Uh, and it is and has been my top priority to make sure that we look at those services, uh, not just in a vacuum, but as a continuum of care. In other words, right. not just saying, well, let's provide that service and uh, it's got to be linked to something. So in other words, uh, when we look at urology services, right, um, we want to make sure that as patients come in and we experience a high rate of individuals that have kidney stones in our community, all right, I want to make sure that I can get those patients in not just somewhere in Southern Michigan or Northern Michigan, but right here at Hillsdale. So which is why I go out and create relationships with 
individuals like our urologist. And so having that access locally is critical. So when we as executives look at keeping patients here, it's done from two different perspectives, all right? The very first perspective, of course, is to make sure that our patients are well cared for and that they receive quick access to healthcare for their emergent or their just plain medical needs. Second of all, the issue becomes an economic argument. Mm -hmm. Why would one want to see patients leave our community that we can take care of here that can help sustain this hospital for another hundred years? Right. And so we have to look at transfers from number one, a perspective of, all right, it's good for patient care. But number two, it's good for the local economies of those respective communities and those respective hospitals. So when someone says to me, uh, why are you worried about so-and-so being transferred out of here? Number one, because we say in our industry, time is tissue. Yep. And what that means is that individuals who have to travel a longer distance for emergent care, let's say, i.e. a stroke, uh, the individual has to drive 35 more minutes to a location that could equal a very poor outcome for that patient, including death. And so we say we want to take care of that patient, stabilize the patient here, administer the TPA, uh, and and then we determine, is it appropriate for that patient to stay here or should we transfer that patient? This is why it's so important that there in rural communities like ours, there can be no diversion of patients outside of those respective communities because it is about patient care. It isn't about the greedy administrator saying, I want everything I can get. Absolutely not. You know my philosophy. We will do really well at what we can do, but we cannot be everything to everybody. And what that means is we are not going to be doing uh, lung surgery here and brain surgery here and those types of things. What we're going to be able to do is in those cases where those patients need higher care, we're going to be able to stabilize the patient. And so for us at Hillsdale, Specifically, as we look at it, our goal is to keep every patient that we can keep here for their number one ease of being local. Number two, reducing poor outcomes or potential fatalities. And number three, to bolster the economy of that health system to ensure that those health systems, hospitals such as ours, remain viable into the future, Rachel. And that, and for all of those reasons above, that's why we do what we do when we look at transfers. Right. So Doris, you are, you lead our transfer review committee. Um, and I've participated on that committee as well. So I know the answer to this question. And so does JJ. But for our listeners, when you're reviewing transfers, what are you looking at? Because that's kind of the process, right? You look at, you keep track of those transfers, you look at them, you're engaged with the providers throughout the process as these patients are being cared for. But then on a weekly basis, we're looking at what are all the transfers that we've seen this week? Do we have any concerns or questions with any of these or why they were transferred or maybe they shouldn't have been? So what are you looking at? What are you looking for as you review that? I I look at um, when I'm when I'm reviewing, I review all the emergency department transfers and all the inpatient transfers. Mm -hmm. And what I will do is I will open up the patient's chart, and I will read through the physician's notes. I will read through the nurse's notes. Um, I look at to see what the physician diagnosis was, but then I also look at um, like any lab reports or, or X-ray results, um, mm -hmm. and determine based on just my knowledge and my experience as to whether that looked like an appropriate transfer or not. If, if, and there have been some that I questioned that I look at it 
um, just based on what was written in the chart. I'm thinking, I'm not sure why we transferred that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. most of the time, well, I should say all of the time, unless we absolutely know it's a patient that has to go out, the ER, the ER physician will contact the hospitalist if they think maybe the patient could be admitted. If the hospitalist feels the patient is beyond their scope, they will recommend transfer. So if I have questions, I'll get a hold of the hospitalist that was on duty and say, right. tell me why you tell me why you didn't think you could keep this patient here. And mm-hmm. I will get an excellent explanation from both of our providers here. I mean, we have two absolutely phenomenal providers that take care of our mm-hmm. patients on the inpatient side. And I trust them um, and implicitly. And and they they know what their limitations are, but they also mm-hmm. take they're very, very good at handling many, many things um, with our patients. I can tell you that going back to 1992, when I first started reviewing, one of the things that we were transferring a lot were, were orthopedic patients. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. and I kept, I kept at, at talking to the CEO at the time and saying, you know, why can't we get an orthopod here? I, I got a lot of well, I I don't think I don't think Hillstall could could support a full time ortho, orthopod, and I thought, well, I did because look at all the patients we transfer, right? Well, eventually, and that's I'm, just for the emergent stuff. That's not the yes. you know routine yeah. or non emergent stuff. Yeah, and that's regular surgeries and stuff. So right. obviously, eventually, we did get orthopods, and now now look at where we are. Um, right. We've looked at. Um, Stroke patients, we we have in the emergency department. We have um, what's called it's a telestroke, and mm-hmm. we connect right with a neurosurgeon um, in Kalamazoo for a patient that comes in with stroke symptoms. We have teleneurology um, to assist if um, if a patient comes in with stroke symptoms and the neurosurgeon feels that um, the patient could just you know could warrant some intervention, then they would recommend transferring. If they say the patient doesn't qualify for any inter- intervention, we could probably keep the patient here. Then we have tel- mm-hmm. teleneuro yep. to assist our providers on the inpatient side with the care of that patient while they're here. One of the other things that, that uh, JJ mentioned was urology. We used to transfer a mm-hmm. lot of urology patients. Um, right. And now that we have urology here, I mean, we haven't transferred any urology patients, and and they they are extremely busy. Extremely. Um, oh, yeah. Another another um, uh, service that we have brought is nephrology. It's true. We used to transfer all of our nephrology patients. Um, somebody that had a very high creatinine that might possibly need dialysis. We didn't. We had to transfer all those patients. Now we have, we can keep all those nephrology patients here. We have Dr., we call him Dr. V. I think it's Dr. Vieta. It is. Um, we call him Dr. V. And he is amazing. Fantastic. And, and, and actually, I looked up and I think he started in November of 21. And he has done 302 um, consults or progress notes wow. on patients since he started in November. Yeah, it's phenomenal. So how many of those might have been transferred if we didn't have him? Probably, probably the majority of them. Because wow. some of those patients now, we, we, we still cannot do chronic dialysis patients, patients that are already on dialysis mm-hmm. like three, three times a week. But if we have a patient that is admitted 
that might need emergent dialysis for a short period of time, we can now take care of those patients here. And mm-hmm. we have done several patients, um, dialysis patients here now. We also now have um, a tele a consult for infectious disease. So mm-hmm. when we have those patients that maybe, again, the hospitalists are, you know, scratching their head about, you know, this patient's just not getting any better, we have an infectious disease specialist that could also assist them. We've been able to keep those patients here. So there is a, a litany of patients that we have been able to keep here over the last probably year and a half to two years that we would have transferred before. Absolutely. Doris, talk a little bit about the transfer task force was actually created by Chuck Chuck Bianchi, a CEO years ago. Um, and it wasn't, he didn't start it immediately, but I think the reason he started it, and correct me if I'm not wrong, is you were witnessing a high level and a high amount of patients out of the emergency department that were being transferred that, quite frankly, you and others thought, uh, we could handle that. So, so t- take us through the origin of the, the transfer task force over the years, and then what has changed today that may have been different 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and why we're looking at it today? I, I can tell you that you're exactly right. We, we did have an extremely high amount of patients going out of the emergency department um, back when, when Chuck started. And, and we did look at those, and we looked at every single one of them. And in fact, at that particular time, when the administrator on call, which we still have administrators on call every, every single day, before a patient could be transferred out of the hospital, they had to contact the administrator on call and let them know what the patient was. And if there was any question about whether we could keep that patient here, then then we would intervene. And we did um, find, run across several patients that um, during that period of time that we probably could have kept here, yep. um, but it was just easy at that time for the emergency providers to just transfer the patient out rather than to try to get them admitted. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they were literally taking the easy way out. That has gotten better over time because I think people now realize um, as we've grown over the years and with the services that we that we provide that I can tell you that on a daily basis, I'm seeing less and less. In fact, we really haven't had to have a, a, a questionable transfer meeting in quite some time because yeah. truly all the meeting or all the transfers have been justified. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is. So I didn't a, get kicked off the committee. We just really haven't had to right. <laughs> have uh, too many meetings lately because we haven't had any questionable transfers. We to have discuss. not had any questionable transfers. They've all been been justifiable. So, you know, when we look at that, Doris, obviously hospitals, CEOs and CFOs who may be listening to this podcast, and we know they do, you know, we get frequent emails uh, indicating that. Um, and maybe this is something they've never really looked at. This has probably saved our hospital. Uh, we were able to at least recover or keep here millions of dollars in downstream revenue and revenue over the past several decades. I, I think that's an accurate statement. Yes. Keeping those patients. In fact, at one time um, when I was doing the transfers, um, I at, at one particular hospital that we would transfer to, um, I would get a monthly report back 
from that hospital with all the patients that we transferred to, to find out what oh. they did and if there was mm-hmm. an intervention done on that patient. So then we could look back and say, maybe we didn't need to transfer that patient. Okay. Absolutely. I don't get that feedback now, but um, it, it was very helpful at the time. But I, I don't really think it's necessary because it the, the transfers truly are justifiable now. Well, and I think, you know, for me as well, from a, you know, communications perspective and, and a, a public perception perspective for the hospital, one of the issues with transferring patients unnecessarily is that you start to create a credibility problem for your hospital. And that's something that, you know, in in healthcare, especially in healthcare communications and marketing, we have what we refer to as telescoping memory, where it takes a very long time for someone to change their perspective or if something goes wrong, for example, to forgive and forget, right? It's not like, you know, when your favorite restaurant gets your order wrong and they gave you Caesar dressing instead mm-hmm. of ranch that you're, you know, you're probably going to get over it pretty quickly. Um, but when it comes to healthcare issues, that's not the case, right? Um, so, you know, for me, in my position, it's important to me that we are looking at those things so that our patients don't start to associate us with a hospital that is incapable of taking care of them, not just when it comes to particular conditions, but in general and overall, right? Because it's one thing to for, for someone to think, oh, well, they don't do heart surgery, yeah. right? But the more things that people are transferred for, the more the perception is they don't do a whole lot, as opposed to they don't do this specific thing or that specific thing. Then we have a credibility issue. Then we have patients who end up migrating out of our community um, on their own because their perception is, well, I need to go somewhere else anyway because Hillsdale probably can't take care of me. And so that's part of this process as well is changing that perception so that our community can continue to have that trust in us. And I have seen that change just in the three years that I've been at Hillsdale. I've seen that change drastically mm-hmm. in that yeah. period of time, especially even through a pandemic, which is, you know, probably helped us in some ways and hurt us in others. Yeah. Um, but as part of this, with our annual report that um, is coming out to the public very soon, based on when this episode airs, we will uh, it'll probably be the following week that our annual report will come out to the public. But one of the things I looked at was our transfer numbers from the past three fiscal years, because I wanted to include a little blurb in our annual report about our efforts to decrease those transfers and what our results have been. So as it turns out, Um, In 2022, we decreased our total ER transfers by 7.3%, which sounds awesome. But wait till you hear (laughs) that we had at the same time a 19.3% increase in total ER patients. So even though our patients went up almost 20%, we still decreased our total transfers by 7.3%. So that really says a lot. And then when I looked at uh, comparing 2022 to 2020 instead of just 2021, because that was the first year I looked at was 2020, we decreased our overall transfers, so inpatient ER, all of it, by 11.7%. So all that to say, I want to ask both of you, um, because those are some pretty dramatic changes. So what do each of you attribute those changes to, those decreases to? I attribute it to the services that we have that we have been able to um, recruit here, um, a stroke, neuro, nephrology, urology, um, infectious disease, I, all, all those. 
plus the fact again i'm i'm going to say kudos to our to our hospitalists that take care of yes. our patients they're amazing many of our listeners are familiar with dr shuker he's been on a couple times yeah dr shuker and dr chaudhry are two main hospitalists that take care of our patients and they're they're ex- extremely extremely skilled and extremely smart and and they they take they take very good care of our patients and you know and I, I will say that sometimes we do transfer patients and maybe the facility that we transfer to don't really do anything with the patient, but that's a risk mm. sometimes we cannot take. Based on the diagnosis that we've got here, if something bad is going to happen, they need to be at that facility and not have it happen here and then have to wait 48 hours to get somewhere. Right, right. We don't take the risk that you know, in not being able to even have the option to provide them another level of care that they need, we got to send them somewhere that has the choice and then they have to hopefully do what's needed for that patient. Exactly. So, Rachel, I can answer that question. Um, Within the first week of assuming the duties and responsibility as president and chief executive officer, do you both recall that I presented because we could not meet due to COVID uh, in the boardroom. Um, I actually had a virtual meeting with all of our cabinet members. So that's the executive leadership team. Uh, do you remember the presentation that I uh, gave that day? And it was, I'm going to give it to you so you don't have to say what. Uh, it was on. <laughs> I, a, I think I do. Okay. It was on what is called a growth strategy. And I presented to the leadership team that we have to have a growth mindset in order mm-hmm. to grow this hospital. And nothing against the predecessor uh, that was here before, but we certainly were not addressing some of the areas of outmigration um, because we really had a mentality of, well, we couldn't afford to bring in those services. Um, mm-hmm. But we, in, just, we hadn't looked at a lot of them in a very yeah. long time. Correct. And so we, you know, I put together uh, the review of our community needs assessment. uh, And then I also knew what it would take to get those services here to have a full continuum of care, which is and has been a tremendous amount of work for me uh, and for our entire team. But it is creating relationships with specialty care like now we can interject all of the names. So urology, nephrology, uh, and when we start looking at all the allergies, we have ENT, your nose throat specialist. Otolaryngology, I believe. Was there that right, we go. Doris? That is, I, that's why I said ENT. Um, and, and then, <laughs> I was and, trying to give you the ology. Yes, you were. And I appreciate it. Um, and we, we begin to look at all of those services that we've been able to bring here. And then we look at, all right, we bring all the allergies here, which are all of our specialists. We begin to form relationships with them. Our growth mindset is we have to continue to grow. While hospitals across this country are cutting, they we I know we cannot cut our way to success at this hospital. And so then we look at our growth strategy to encompass, all right, there's a specialty care. How about why are the community members leaving Hillsdale? Well, many of them were leaving because of wound care. And mm-hmm. there were opportunities in hyperbaric chamber. And so what did we create? A wound care and hyperbaric chamber. What else did we do? We expanded our pain clinic to include three CRNAs on its own dedicated floor with its own C-arm and all the equipment. That was a contribution that we had to make, uh, first of all, in, in purchasing equipment, but second of all, investing in people. And then you look at, all right, what else did we do across the continuum to keep patients here? All right. So then we established a relationship with neurology and a relationship for teleneurology. 
keeps the patient here. Now we're looking at, all right, in this growth mindset, what other things and other niche services can we, can we provide? And we're starting to address fee-for-service now. Patients that are leaving our community that are doing fee-for-service for whether it's bariatric or cosmetic, mm-hmm. what can we do? And, and that has to be our growth mindset. Now, when we were not looking at urology and bringing urologists here and ENT to bring them here and having nephrology here and having wound care here and having all those services, and now Doris, we're able through nephrology to have dialysis. And so we're doing dialysis here on the inpatient side. Well, then the growth begins to expand from there. And we realize, all right, if you're going to have neurology, you're going to have nephrology, you're going to have you know dialysis, well, then you have to have infectious disease. And you've already mentioned that. Um, then we look at, okay, what are the other areas of service? Well, now we're starting to focus on cancer services, oncology. So we, we, we start a oncology program um, and a partnership. And how do you start it? Well, you first have to start it with an infusion center. So we begin to build an infusion center. And so we do all of that. Then we realize, all right, we have to have partnerships with technology. So we bring in a PET scan. And all of this is going on at the same time, Rachel. And uh, as, you and, as you and Doris <laughs> both know, because yes, Doris is on the know. quality end of it and, and on the risk management side of it, you're on the marketing side of it. Well, there's yep. not a moment to waste, you know, and that's why I'm no. going in a shotgun approach in 10 different mm-hmm. directions, you know. We and so to. when someone said to me, I think it was a year ago, um, I had just, we had just launched that we were bringing neurosurgery here. I had someone in the community tell me, that's a little much, don't you think, JJ? Don't you think neuro- Hillsdale <laughs> Hospital can do neurosurgery? It's been phenomenal. And you said, have you ever needed back surgery? Yeah, what do you mean a little exactly. much? Exactly. I said, absolutely nothing is impossible. And we're mm-hmm. looking at some, what, what many would say is impossible. To me, Rachel, that is... What we've probably said before, well, we'll never do X. Some of those we're actually looking at now because there may be yeah. opportunities for us to do them. Someone said and to I me... And I don't want to say what X well, is I will. until we do. Someone know, said to me, you know, you'll never have a cath lab at Hillsdale. You'll never, you'll never have neurosurgery at Hillsdale. You'll never get another ENT to come to Hillsdale. And you know what? These are all things that either have happened or ladies and gentlemen, will happen because we're working on those. So there's great opportunities that exist for us not to transfer the patient. You want to create a continuum of care. And I think, you know, that we've been very successful in the last three years bringing these services here to keep the patients here. Now, who doesn't like it? Well, all in favor, raise your hand. Uh, Probably finance, because it's a huge capital outlay to bring some of these services here. But we know the long term, Mm -hmm return on our investment as we get to keep our patients here for services that they need that could be life-saving. And when we think about a PET scan mm-hmm. that would detect something or a, a body scan that would detect something uh, or or just bringing new technologies such as what we're doing with mammography and some of those technologies has been really instrumental in saving lives in our community while providing downstream revenue and preventing transfers out of this hospital. So, Rachel, for all of those reasons, I would say it is what we do and why we do it. And I would have to say that you talk growth strategy at every single meeting, every single leadership meeting, sorry, every single manager meeting, <laughs> every single board meeting, every single meeting period. You always talk growth strategy. And on Rural Health Rising now. And on so, Rural Health Rising, yes. So it's everywhere. So, you know, obviously, Doris, you've spent a tremendous amount of time safeguarding this hospital from ensuring that patients do not leave our community if we can take care of them. So on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, thank you for being the the eyes 
uh, for this program and a voice for the patient. Let's not forget, this isn't just about the greedy administrator saying we get to keep patients here. It's about, all right, patient care. And the best patient care is time is tissue. Do not delay the transfer of that patient if they truly need to go. But if if they truly don't need to go, bring that patient here to Hillsdale Hospital. And we would say that globally. Bring the patient to your rural communities, you know, and that's why you've got... Where their family can visit, where they have, you know, access to, to their personal support system while they're being hospitalized. Absolutely. And I think people need to understand, um, I, I get a lot of comments you know, being the risk manager, um, well, your job is to protect the hospital. <laughs> well, that may be true to a certain extent, but that's not how I view my job is to just protect the hospital. My job is to protect the patient. My job... Which protects the which hospital, protects by the, the hosp- way. The best way yes. to protect the hospital is protect the patient. Yes. My job is to make sure that our patients receive good quality care. And you're right. If our... If the patients are safe and receive quality care, then that does protect the hospital. And for all of those reasons, we say thank you. And we thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising for your second debut. Uh, and we look forward to having you back maybe in the next, uh, maybe the next decade, right? Uh, because you'll, and then you can say then that you started when you were in your mother's belly. Yeah, okay. Uh, when she was here <laughs> yeah, receiving services at Hillsdale we'll Hospital. We can just back it up. So Doris, <laughs> thanks again for joining us today. We appreciate the time and effort that you've given. I appreciate the invite. And it, I have enjoyed this actually. Before we close, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, Doris, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? And you've lived rural, I think, all of your life. Yes, I was born and raised in Hillsdale. And actually, I, I remember the last time I was on, you asked me that question. I really didn't know how to answer it. But the more I think about it, I do know how to answer that question today. Um, I I did grow up uh Living in the Hillsdale City, however, I had grandparents that had a farm in North Adams, and my mom's parents had a farm in Jonesville. And I guess one of my best memories ever is being at at the farms and spending time on the farms with both of my grandparents and going out in the field and helping my grandfather bale hay and milk cows and do all those kinds of things that kids do. That's awesome. But at the time, it feels like chores. And then now, years later, you've got those great memories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us again today, Doris. You're welcome. And thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.